0: in your bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And the title of this morning's message is godly grief brings joy. Godly grief brings joy. So let's read through, just get an understanding of the chapter and then we'll get into breaking it down for everyone. Lord we, uh, we ask that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us to see and hear according to your spirit. Father, I pray that you give us understanding of your word and that as we look at this godly grief, how, how it is that it produces repentance that leads to salvation, that leads to life. I pray that you would encourage us, Lord, to not only understand it, but to apply it to our own lives and to see the fruit of that. Come about to your glory. And so, Father, we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We ask your blessing. We praise you. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth this as we continue on from chapter 6 and chapter 7, verse 1. It says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. Fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What a sweet letter or portion of this letter. It's, it's wonderful to read it like that as a whole. You know, and I encourage you as, as you read God's word that you do that in these portions because you get the heart behind it. You know, you, you see it all come together in context and it's Wonderful. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, people seem to jump into faith very quickly nowadays. I do not disapprove of, what, of that happy leap, but still I hope my old friend repentance is not dead. I am deeply in love with repentance. It seems to be the twin sister to faith. Repentance has been referred to as a first word of the gospel. When John the Baptist preached on the shores of the Jordan, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 4.17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is a godly grief towards sin that produces a repentance that is necessary for for knowing the fullness of God's joy. It's absolutely necessary to grieve in this manner. And I have this, this question as we think about the first letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church. It, it was a very bold, a very stern letter. It was a rebuke. It was strong admonishment. That is not what we're seeing here. We're seeing completely something completely different. And so as we think about what happened, I want to quickly go back to 1 Corinthians and just go just read a few verses to give us just really a, a clear picture of the contrast between the Christians in Corinth of the first letter of Paul and his second letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now, this is to the church. These are, these are very strong words. It's like me coming and telling you, hey, I cannot address you as spiritual people. You are carnal. You are all about yourselves. You're like, wow, okay, that's strong. That's, that's how and even stronger he was coming across. So he writes this, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Let's go to the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. It says, some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. This was this was like we talk about tolerance in the world today. That that is something to grasp and to embrace and to bring close. That's exactly what this church was guilty of at that time. But it wasn't a tolerance that was founded in God's love. It was a compromise that was founded in the world and in the depths of hell. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8, it says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. But now, but now as we go to this next letter, especially this chapter, in the last verse of this chapter, 2 Corinthians seven sixteen, the Apostle Paul is able to write with complete confidence, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Oh, what a stark con- contrast that is, isn't it? So wouldn't you want to know what happened? What happened within that church that the Apostle Paul could now write this letter in saying these things? I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. It was genuine repentance. That's, what, that's what's happened. It's a remarkable transfer, transformation that's taken place. It's the Spirit of God bringing conviction to the people. That's very necessary. I often say that the life of a Christian is not a one-time repentance, but it's a daily repentance. It's it's a posture that we have toward the Lord, the Almighty God, the Creator of heaven and earth, considering Him in every moment of every day. Paul had expressed a loving boldness toward the Christians in Corinth by writing and sending, sending them this harsh letter that's referred to. It was a letter of rebuke, not 1 Corinthians, but there was another, another letter that he refers to. Uh, he refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and also in chapter 7, verse 8, what we just read. And his first letter to the Corinthians was also, like I mentioned earlier, sharp and full of rebuke and admonishment for their carnality and spiritual immaturity. That's why I said at the very beginning, what will bring us through spiritual immaturity and into a place of completeness with the Lord is coming to be knowledgeable and walking out with discerning application the word of God in our lives to God's glory. We see everything that pertains to life and godliness in the word of God. He has the answers to everything, and it helps us deal with certain circumstances in our lives in a manner in which is fitting to being called a child of God. It's being called Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And now we have a whole new church. You can say it's not even recognizable from the church that Paul had first addressed in, in that first letter. It's a church that is better off for having received Paul's rebuke and admonishment. Now Paul said, the brethren in Corinth had his complete confidence were a group that he was comforted by and Titus was comforted by and said he had great pride in them. Like like a fatherly love and a pride for his children, he had that type of emotion toward them. He was full. He was like overflowing with joy is what he was saying. And I believe it's important that we know how this all came about. And that's what we're taking a look at this morning. Let's look again at verse 1. So chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul begins by continuing what he had previously told them was their responsibility to separate themselves From anything that would defile them in body and or spirit, and therefore knowing a fullness of the holiness of God. That that's a a maturity, a spiritual maturity in godly wisdom. Going back real quick to chapter six, verse fourteen, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with belial? Or, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So, Paul laid out this contrast between that which defiles the body and the spirit and that which is holy. The result of heeding this warning was that it was what the Lord had said through Paul, even in that chapter. Uh, In fact, Paul was quoting Isaiah. 52 verse 11 and was quoted in verses 17 and 18, which says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So God was giving this promise and and Paul was simply continuing what he was telling them. In the previous chapter, he gives this promise. The Lord does, which is absolutely conditional, right? If this happens, then this will take place. And it was conditional upon one thing. Upon obedient action. Obedient action. This is what Paul begins this section of the letter with. But then he gives, us, gives them th- these words of encouragement. In verse 2, he continues on, and he says, "...make room in your hearts. For us, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comf- comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy." Paul is saying that he does not come to them with a self-serving, deceiving, bitter, or angry heart, but with a pure, genuine, and loving concern for the brethren there in Corinth. Paul didn't take advantage of them for selfish gain, nor was he there to tear them down. That wasn't the purpose of it. It was like, hey, I, I, I'm I, not here for personal gain. And you know, I'm not here to condemn you either. Even, even what I'm saying... In regards to opening your heart to me, it's, it's not for, for me, but it's for the Lord's glory that he might be glorified through you. What he said and did was to build them up in their faith out of a deep love for them. Paul even states what he had told them before. You are in our hearts. He was saying, hey, I've told you this before to die together and to live together. In other words, he was saying, I love you so much that I will never leave your side. No matter what happens, I won't jump ship. And here's how this body, this how this how this family is to come together and and exist and live. We win and we lose together. That's really important. That's, that's important for us to learn and to apply. As a family. We win and we lose. Sometimes, you know, we're not at this uh, mountaintop, this peak. Sometimes there's issues that happen in the family. But if we tend to those things in a manner in which is glorifying to the Lord according to God's word and we get through them having his best interest at heart. We stick together. We have this loyalty. We have this trust. We have this growth that happens within the church in such a way that it is absolutely beautiful and it's appealing to the outside world. Why? Because they, they scream unity, but we're exemplifying it right here the way it should be. Right here. All to God's glory. And then Paul says, I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. That's, again, it's like, wow, what what happened? This is completely different from what Paul was telling them in his first letter. So then he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted By you, as he told us, of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So Paul is leading up to the explanation of how this amazing transformation took place within the church at Corinth. But meanwhile, leading up to it, Paul is expressing this, this amazing comfort, this joy, this encouragement that came as a result of their revival repentance imagine it, it's like you're the cause of my joy doesn't that in turn bring you joy it's like wow that's that's encouraged really I was I was like like what I did was instrumental in how you're feeling right now yeah and, and it's a source you are a source of encouragement not just of joy but an encouragement and comfort and I'm just right now I am I cannot believe how much happiness and joy and how blessed I am because of you. That's what he was telling them right th- right there. But God comforts, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us, is what Paul said. You see, the apostle Paul knew. He knows the character of God. He knows that he definitely is the God that comforts the downcast. And and he has comforted us, no doubt, through Titus and through report of how you responded to that strong rebuke, to that second letter also that I sent to you, which which we don't have a copy of. It is truly amazing how God can use others to encourage and comfort us at just the right time. It's like we, we aren't even expecting it. And then someone, unexpectedly, Gives us this word of encouragement. Oh man, it's like the day we think a day's never going to end. You know, it's like what else can happen? You know. On the outside, you're struggling, but on the inside, you're you're fearful. It's like man, I'm I'm, I'm fighting this thing. I'm going at it, but I'm tired. I'm like this is this is heavy. This is overwhelming. And then you have someone come at just the right moment. It, it could be a phone call. It could be a text. It could be a personal visit. It could be a tweet. It could be an Instagram. It could be a note that you leave on Facebook. Any one of those things God can use to bring comfort, encouragement, Strength, direction, counsel, according to his word. He can use all of those things. Let me tell you that our natural inclination is to withdraw. It's to isolate when we are facing some very difficult problems. But isolation is not the answer to problems. Do not neglect the fellowship of the brethren. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 speaks directly to that. Do not neglect The fellowship of the brethren, the church coming together. That's exactly where we need to be when we're going through tough times. Not to retreat, but to engage even that much more. Paul was telling them that in the midst of intense affliction, his personal intense affliction, he was tired but couldn't rest. And everywhere he turned, it seemed as if there was no end to the conflict. I mean, you think you're going through tough times? Read about Paul's life. Check out what he endured. And he's the one that said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Just absolutely amazing. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He penned those words by the inspiration of the Spirit. And Paul continued to fight. And at the same time, he was saying he was experiencing a fear within. And just at that time, God comforted Paul with Titus finding him. So Titus found Paul in the midst of all of this conflict. And on top of the comfort of Titus's present, he learned of how the brethren in Corinth had comforted Titus. And to top it off, Paul was comforted to know that the brethren in Corinth um, actually did like him. Not only did they like him... But they loved him, and they missed him, and they heeded the word. And he said, so that I rejoice still more. That's why Paul had written in verse 4, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing. And then Paul begins to address this letter of rebuke and admonishment. Paul said that he doesn't regret writing, sending this letter. Because it led them to know a godly grief that led them to repent. He said, hey, there was no loss. It was all profit. It was all profit. So therefore, for that reason, I do not regret it. Now, the fact that you did grieve, uh, yeah, that that pains my heart. Because I hate to see anyone grieve. But it was only for a little bit. And it produced a repentance in, in you that led to life. That, that's the important part. So there was no loss whatsoever. And so it's for this reason that Paul rejoices, praising God for this. Alan Redpath said, quote, Paul who spoke to them like this and loved them so deeply, nevertheless had to face them with some important issues, but they had accepted his rebukes and had listened to his word and had responded with brokenhearted repentance. Because of this, God had brought them right through into revival. What a wonderful thing true repentance is, close quote. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance. Repentance is not just a one-time act. Not just one moment, I'm going to repent, and that's it. But it's an ongoing state of the person. It's, it's who we are. A person who knows salvation by grace through faith before a just and holy God. Like, when you start thinking about this, you can't help but just, it's, it's like you think about it, you keep going, you keep going, you're, you're bowing, you're bowing, you're bowing before the Lord Almighty. Why? Because it's just a, a right posture before the King. It's like, you pardon me. Not only did you pardon me, but I am joint heir of your riches in Christ Jesus. That that is amazing. That's grace. And I didn't have to do anything. Repentance is a proper response to the lordship of the one from whom eternal life has been received freely, joyfully, and lovingly. It's, it's a heart that's tender toward the Savior. The question is, before we continue on, have you been forgiven? God has extended forgiveness to you through Jesus Christ. Have you come to know that grace that can only come through the Son? Because our response is leading a life pleasing to God according to His Word. So Paul was telling them that he was encouraged, comforted, and overflowing with joy by the news that he had received of their repentance. And then he explains how it took place. Verse 10 he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without without regret. This is what was taken, what had taken place with them, with them. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I love the fact that, hey, it wasn't, it wasn't um, for the sake of the one that was doing the wrong or the one that was, the wrong was being done to, okay? Listen, that, that's, not, that's not the point. It was that this carefulness, this reverence towards God might be revealed toward God in your hearts. That's really what it's all about. Now, I do want to back up a bit because, number one, what we need to look at is is found in verse 10. That godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, this doesn't mean that we are saved by our repentance, but godly sorrow is what produces repentance, which is a turning from sin because of the awareness we are brought to. That our sin is offensive toward God and therefore we grieve because we believe that we have sinned against God. It's acknowledging for him for who he is. At the moment we acknowledge him for who he is and who Jesus Christ is. The moment that happens, it's like the Lord puts a slight on our sin. Why? Because we've come to believe who he is. Who he truly is. And when he puts that line on our sin, we are grieved. We are absolutely grieved. And when we are grieved in our hearts, what happens is that that produces a repentance, a turning from our sins. You see, repentance describes what coming back to God is. There is no way we can turn back to God without turning from the things that he is against. Paul describes two types of sorrow here in our text. One produces a repentance that leads to salvation, that is, life without regret. There's no regrets whatsoever. The other simply produces death. That's how he describes it. A worldly sorrow or grief produces one thing it's death. Alan Redpath, again to quote him, said Quote, quite evidently, it is possible for us to be sorry, to be chagrined to be full of remorse without ever being repentant. It is possible for sorrow to have nothing at all to do with God. That is the difference between true and false repentance. The one puts our sin in the light of God's judgment. The other ignores God altogether. The one grieves with a broken heart over the sin itself. The other is embittered with the consequences of sin, but has never been made to grieve over the act, close quote. And it brought me to think, this is why it's important that we know God's word. That it's not a human philosophy that is brought forth. but It is simply the word of God. You see, repentance begins to take place the moment a man sees his life in light of the law of God and recognizes his utter offense of God against him, although he may have thought at one point, just like me, I thought at one point that I knew and loved God and was accepted by God. I wanted to believe that wholeheartedly. I I did. And I was unsaved. And I was not understanding the manner in which I was to respond to God, really knowing him, and how it is that my sin was an offence to a righteous and holy God. But repentance begins to take place the moment a man sees his life in light of the law of God and recognizes his utter offense of God, although he may have thought at one point that he knew and loved God and was accepted by God, has now been brought to understand that he falls grossly short of anything that would be acceptable to God without his grace first being received through faith in Jesus Christ. See, we think we're doing good. It's like, well, I've, I've done this and I've done that. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't really stolen anything of great significance. I haven't wronged anyone. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. You know, I, I go out and I, I give to certain charities I do this, I do that. God should accept that, right? He's a loving God. It's like, what? If you knew God, that then you would know that our righteousness before a righteous and holy God, are like our righteous, what we would consider to be righteous, acts, behavior, even a state of mind, thoughts, is like dirty garments before him. Even on our best days, it's filth. It, it's still not right. It's not what's acceptable to him. So when we come to understand that, that we, that we respond. Worldly sorrow only produces bad feelings of the consequences that come as a result of breaking man's law or even committing an offense against the law of our conscience but it does not consider God. Worldly sorrow simply leads to death because it doesn't lead to the necessary repentance toward God. There's, there's no confession of sin. Confession of sin, by the way, is simply agreeing with God that that is sin. So it, we can argue with God until our last day. And it still doesn't make it right. Worldly sorrow... Simply leads to death. But, but godly sorrow is grieving that your sin is an offense to God. Romans 2, four says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So when we understand, oh, he's kind, he's patient, he's loving. This is how he demonstrated it to me. And that's supposed to lead us to Repentance. And then secondly, we have this evidence of genuine repentance in verse 11. It's laid out for us. This is what genuine repentance produces. And this is what the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians. This is what's being produced in you. This is what I see. This is the fruit that is really I am overflowing with joy about. This is amazing. Number one, there's earnestness, a sincere and intense conviction. In other words, genuine repentance led the Corinthian believers to be mindful of the way in which they lived. They were careful about the company they kept, careful about how they taught, careful about the places they went, careful about the temptations they needlessly could expose themselves to, and so on and so forth. They were careful. They were walking circumspectly, gingerly, you could say, and with full awareness in the world. They were more mindful about breaking God's heart than breaking the heart of the world. They conscientiously steered clear of the entanglements With things that offended God. Conscientiously. Not neglectfully. Secondly, they demonstrated this eagerness to be cleared. There was a sense of urgency in making sure that all dealings that offended God were dealt with. That's what that is telling us there. There was this drastic action that took place within the body of believers in Corinth without any compromise whatsoever. I'm not going to withhold this just because i want to i want to be clear period if there was a letter that needed to be written associations to be removed from relationships that needed to be mended etc cetera, etc cetera, then it was all dealt with making sure that they were clear of the offenses toward god all everything that they knew of as much as depended on them they were living at peace with all men that's what was going on with them There was also, though, this anger that had surfaced within them. It's called indignation or righteous indignation. It's a righteous anger. Alan Redpath said, I am glad the Bible allows me to get mad, mad with the devil, to think that he had the audacity to pull me down and make me do that. What indignation, what fury at sin and all the agencies of Satan. That's a good anger. That is is right on. Rightly placed anger towards something that angers the heart of God that produces not bitterness, but action that is pleasing to God. It's like, man, that makes me so upset. It's like, that's the fighting spirit that you need to have. That's it right there. There is also this fear that they were demonstrating, or reverence. There was a difference in the way they lived their lives, the way they walked, the way they talked, the way they handled themselves, the way they didn't just blurt some things out, they held back, their mouths were guarded, their hands were kept down, there is a godly purpose in how they thought, talked, and acted, their lives were no longer lived in a flippant manner, like, hey, whatever comes, whatever, you know, if you're in Rome, live as a, no, no, we are foreigners in this land as Christians, our home is not here, it's there, it's with the Lord. Glorify him. Fifthly, longing and zeal. There was this hungering for a relationship with God. There was a longing for God to walk with them and spend time also not only with them in his word and in prayer, but also in his service. Laziness was no longer found within the Corinthian church, but a passion enveloped them that was evidence of a genuine revival that took place in their hearts. When God moves in your heart, oh, it'll be evident to everyone around you. You won't have to say a thing. What do you have? What's going on? Where are we going? What are we doing? Mission strip? What do, what do we have? We have greeters. We have this. We have um, the hands and feet ministry. We have. You can participate in so many different areas of, of, of the church. And when God grabs a hold of your heart, he gives you this, this zeal and this passion and the sense of urgency for the things that pertain to him. This work that he has. And that's what this Corinthian church was. They were they were all they were moving. There's also this punishment that we see. Number six, a readiness to destroy anything against God. That's a good posture to have. Second Corinthians ten verses five and six says, "We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete." It wasn't a set of words or a display of feelings that proved their genuine, godly sorrow and repentance, but rather it was their actions that displayed this and proved it. It was their actions. Alan Redpath, again, you can tell that I went a lot to, I love Alan, okay, here's who I love. Alan Redpath, Warren Rearsby, um, John MacArthur, uh, David Guzik. Th- those are the guys that I've come to, like, surround myself with and a few others, all right? This time you're getting just Alan Redpath, right? But Alan Redpath said this, "'Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, therefore, is a sorrow that leads to, cha- to a change of purpose, of intention, and of action. It is not the sorrow of idle tears. It is not crying by your bedside because, once again, you have failed.' Nor is it vain regret, wishing things had never happened, wishing you could live the moments again. No, it is not that. It is a change of purpose and intentions, a change of direction and action, close quote. That's what that is. It's not sitting there. It's like, I know many people that are wasting away away their lives with worldly grief. I wish it would have been different. I wish... I wish I wouldn't have experienced that. I wish this, I wish that. You know what what it's leading to? Death. Because you know what they're still doing? Nothing. Nothing. And you know who it's impacting? Everyone. Everyone. (sighs) Do you know anyone who lives in the past? Who has this worldly sorrow, this grief that overwhelms them? Tell me, who does that benefit? I I know people. And it's not very long before you tend to say, you know, I, I got I to go. You know, or, I have another call coming in. No. As Christians, we have hope. We have purpose. We have this, this God that we are to serve with zeal and passion. We have enough on our hands, enough before us to demonstrate to him our thankfulness and gratefulness. For the love that he first demonstrated to us. And Paul says to the Christians in Corinth that in all these points they have proven a sincere, genuine repentance of what they were previously guilty of. So they weren't living in it's like that was that was old, that's dead. Today, God's mercies, the Bible says, God's mercies are new every day. Don't get hung up on yesterday. Yesterday can be a huge burden a weight that you cannot stand under. You can't today ask for repentance. Lord, give me uh, just, uh, just a, a fresh new perspective. I Please forgive me. I have sinned against you and you alone. But today starts a new life in me. That's what happened with a whole bunch of people in Corinth. This amazing revival took place. And the question is, is there evidence of genuine repentance in your life? Do you have evidence of that in your life? This fruit, is it there? And if not, you know what? I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just saying good. I'm glad that maybe the Lord's bringing that to your awareness. Because remember, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation or life every time. And we see here in closing that God's word was for the benefit of all. Paul ends this portion just on a again on this this high note he says and besides our own comfort we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all or y'all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. It's perfectly clear that Paul had confidence that the Corinthian believers would Uh, you know, had responded to what he had written to them about in the previous letter and who and how they would respond to it. Because he's saying here, hey, I I boasted to Titus. I was bragging about you. I was thinking, yeah, I sent them, you know, 1 Corinthians in this this sharp letter. But I knew you would respond. And I was bragging about you to Titus, my brother, when he came to you. I was proven right. I was proven right. Titus was refreshed by the repentant hearts of the humble Corinthians. Paul was comforted. Titus' affection toward the Corinthians was made greater, and Paul was overjoyed. He said, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So we see here, do we have that, that godly grief, that godly sorrow? As we come before a righteous and holy God. Because godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Remember Job? Job regretted the day that he was born. Because of everything that he was going through. But I've never known anyone to regret their second birth. The day that they came to the same knowledge of Jesus Christ. I've never known someone that's regretted that day. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when we do acknowledge our sin is against God, and actually that sin that we acknowledge is what separates us from Him, and, and we believe who He is, we sorrow and repent and come to know an abundant life in Him and life everlasting. I know that at the point that I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it was at that point up to now that I've known this abundant life that I had never known before. I thought by all my striving, traveling, doing things and all of that, that that would satisfy and fulfill me, but it wasn't. It was all vain. It was all empty. But there was one experience that has topped it all off, and that was the experience of coming to know Jesus As Lord and Savior. That was it. And you know what? That will follow me into eternity for all time. Right into the glory of the Father. Godly grief is not only of benefit to the person that repents, but also to everyone who knows him or her. A godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life everlasting because our eyes are open to who God is in our lives. And we are willing to surrender to this amazing God who loves us eternally and offers salvation to all mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So I ask you this morning, in closing, it's like I was so excited about this message. Like, it's funny because I was, you know, I, I begin to tell my family, I'm really excited about this message, and I'm like, I'm excited about every message. Like, every time we come together, it's like, oh, man, I am so full. I can't wait to come and just tell you all about what I've learned. And, and I'm just reminded, that's, this is the good news every time. It's good news every time because it helps if we're Christians, if we're already believers, it corrects us, refines us, it strengthens us, it encourages us. It, 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 it kind of stirs us up. And, it, and if we were having a week that was kind of off, it kind of, it writes us and we keep going. But even if you're hearing you don't know salvation in Jesus Christ, it's still, it's, this is good news. Why? Because this, when you do see your sin in light of a perfect and holy God, you realize that he's not, he didn't send his son to condemn you, but to offer a way of salvation. He's reaching down with his right hand, so to speak. He was saying, take my hand. I'm, I'm sending my son to this earth to die in your place for, to atone for, the, for your sins. You don't owe me anything. I'm paying for it all. And he demonstrated that love. So for, if you're sitting here and you don't know the love of Christ, where it starts is you believe God for who he is. You believe that he sent his only begotten son to die in your place. It begins there. And when you see your sin in light of his love and who he is, you will repent of your sin. And you will know that life of abundance in Jesus Christ. You will begin to see what we have in him. And you will respond by living a life that glorifies the Lord. It won't be out of duty. It won't be because you have to. These do's and don'ts, they're all in there. Yeah, they're all in there. It's it's for our benefit. But it's not because it's the do's and don'ts, the laws, there are all these things, rules and regulations. No, it's like, how can I please you? How can I please you? Out of a love, out of, this is a response for the one who has been found right before the Father in the Son. I pray that that's you this morning. You can do that in the privacy of your chair right now. And you can ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. And you can ask Jesus, heart, G- Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And I tell you, what you've proclaimed to God before him, it'll be evident to everyone around you. As you are, at that point, a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have become old. All the past has become old. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. And I pray that today is the day of salvation for you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that this love letter just continues to speak to us. And, and Lord, your heart is revealed to us in such a way that it is truly overwhelming to know your grace and your incomprehensible love that you demonstrated to us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live lives of true repentance. That we would continually come before you, submitting ourselves to your lordship and being refined by you, strengthened by you, Lord, all to your glory, to reflect your glory to other people. And I pray that if there is anyone here who has not surrendered to you, Father, that they do respond this morning that today is the day of salvation because tomorrow is not promised, this afternoon is not promised. So Father, I pray that there is a, a deep and sincere and genuine response.